All right. Well, Merry Christmas. Uh, it is good to be here. Good to see everyone today. We're doing this uh, three-part series uh, called Peace on Earth. We started it last week, and we're continuing it, uh, continuing it this week, and then we'll be finishing it on Christmas Eve. And uh, just as well, I want to say to anyone online, make sure you hit that like button and hit the subscribe button. That helps to boost it to more people and helps you stay more connected to us uh, as well. And uh, peace on earth. Why is, it, why is it that Jesus came to bring peace on earth? What, what are we talking about here? Yes, Jesus did say that we're to be peacemakers. He said, he said blessed are the peacemakers. Um, but really, ultimately, the, 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 the greatest peace that Jesus has come to bring is peace between us and God. There's a conflict, a spiritual conflict between, as a breakdown between us and God, and Jesus has come to solve that conflict by bringing peace, restoring the relationship, the broken relationship between us and God. And there's three roles that God has raised up throughout biblical history that culminate in the person of Jesus in which God has specifically worked through to bring about this peace. And this, is, this represents the weeks of our series. So uh, we're talking about prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. The prophets of old spoke the words of God, brought the messages of God to God's people and to other nations as well. The priests of God made sacrifices on behalf of the people that the people might be forgiven of their sins. Kings, God raised up kings with the ideal and the the goal that there would be peace and justice, there would be stability in the land. And God has always used these three roles to bring about peace on earth, but they culminate, they were all pointing these things throughout history as we look back and we look at different people like uh, prophets like Nathan who called out the sin of David, priests like Abiathar who served David and then kings as well like David himself. We look back at all those and we see that the human expression of those roles was only partial, was flawed, was incomplete and actually they were always pointing to something greater, to a greater person, a greater person that would actually fulfill all of those roles themselves, and that's Jesus, who is prophet, priest, and king. Now, I would argue, actually, all cultures, to be righteous, need these kind of roles within them, and when cultures lose these roles, you see destructive things happening, or some cultures never even have these roles, but the idea of the prophets being the truth-tellers, kind of revealing the deceptions within the culture, you know, the priests being the spiritual leaders, helping people walk with God, and righteous leaders and rulers bringing about true justice and righteousness on the earth. We see that we need these things, but we can't quite get them right, can we? Every time we try and our best efforts fall short, it always crumbles, always falls apart, but in Jesus we have the perfect expression of these important roles, these important leadership gifts uh, that God has called and raised up. So last week we looked at the idea of prophet and that Jesus is the prophet of prophets. But more than that, he's the source of all the words that the prophets ever spoke. And so that's last week. That's on our YouTube channel. That's on our iTunes podcast. If you missed it, you can catch up there. Today we're talking about priest, the idea that Jesus is the priest of priests. And then for uh, December 24th, our Christmas Eve Advent service, we'll be talking about king, how Jesus is the king of kings. And just like Thelma said, you don't want to miss that service. It's going to be very special. Our kids are going to be reading uh, the Christmas story from the Bible, so that will be almost as cute as watching cat videos. Um, So you don't want to miss that. My wife will be doing the message for that, so you don't want to miss that. That would be great. We'll be doing Christmas carols. It'll be a very special, it'll be like a 30-minute service, uh, but it'll be a nice way for us to honor Jesus together as a church community, online only. 
Um, but this, so this series we're doing, Prophet, Priest, and King, what's interesting is this aligns amazingly with the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. So the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a gift fit for a king. Frankincense is actually what the priests burned when they were making their sacrifices. And then uh, myrrh was a, basically an embalming resin that was kind of given as a prophetic gift indicating and predicting the death that Jesus was born to die on purpose for sinners. And so last week we actually were diffusing myrrh. It was a very potent smell. We had lots of myrrh last week. And then the, uh, today we're diffusing uh, frankincense. It's not quite as strong. I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm slightly disappointed. I wish it was a stronger scent, but we've got some uh, diffusers around. So if you want to get up close and get some of that, I've got a bunch of it on my hands because I was the one putting it in. But uh, the frankincense is, is uh, in the atmosphere today. And we, we're doing that because we want to really evoke all of our senses to get into what the priests were doing. And this idea of Jesus being the priest of priests, they were burning incense as they were making these sacrifices. So that can help us think about this, this role as we get into our scripture today. I'm going to be uh, speaking from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 today. And uh, that will come up on the screen. And we have uh, Bibles in the, in the back as well. If you want a free Bible, just take a Bible and keep it. We love to give out Bibles. Um, but we're going to pray, and then we're going to uh, read here from Hebrews 7, verse 23. Jesus, help us as you did last week, to understand that you are the prophet of prophets, help us to understand that you are the priest of priests and what that means and why that's important to our lives and to every life on this earth. Thank you that you were born, one of us, that you stepped into our fallenness, our brokenness, our frailty to save us and redeem us. Help us to remember that. Help us to know that. And for anyone here today who's far from you, who's just not sure about you, I pray today that their eyes will be opened to your truth, to your word, and they'd see it for the first time. It would click, and they'd know, they'd know you. I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 7, 23 through, uh, we're going to read through chapter 8, verse 2. So bear with me here. It says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. If you're confused at all, don't worry, I'll be explaining all this. We'll get there. Verse 24, but he, that's talking about Jesus, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then, and, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is God's word. Now, if you're scratching your head, 
I don't blame you. Hebrews is one of the harder books in the New Testament, as our small group was recently talking about. And you might, if you don't have, if you're not familiar with the world of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, you might be scratching your head saying, I'm not sure I really get this. I don't really get it. So let's back up. Let's do, let's do a Bible study today. It's church. So we're going to do, we're going to get in. We're going to, let's go back to the beginning. Let's create some context so that we can actually, again, another thing in our small group, shout out to our small group talking about context in the Bible. What's going on here? Um, Back to the start, God is a holy God. We're going to go all the way very, very back. Everything starts with God. God was before everything, uncreated. You know, we have to, everyone believes there was something before there was any, nothing. You know, either there was a singularity, whatever that is, or there's God, you know, either option. So we believe there's God. Uh, I like that option better than just the singularity option. Uh, but there's a God, and this God is holy. That means he is without sin, not evil at all. And this God decided to make creation and his fingerprints are in everything that he made. He made us, he made the human race, and he gave us some type of autonomy, some type of individuality. And it was this gift that he gave us that was exploited, and we were tricked and tempted, and because of our fall into disgrace, we've now been permanently marred, permanently marked by evil, and so there's this chasm between a holy God and kind of fallen sinners, as it were. There's this strife. And so that's why, that's why we all intuitively know and want there to be good. We believe that good is better. Hopefully we all believe that, that good is better. And that we want a good outcome for things. We want more goodness in the world. That's why we want that, because we're all made in God's image. And there's that residual initial effect of creation of the goodness of God that he's put into everything. And we see that coming out, and that's in us. But that also explains, it also explains the fact that we were tempted and that we fell away from that from that goodness and it permanently marked by evil why it's we're in this mixture the what, what sometimes the bible calls the overlap or what can be called the overlap of ages where we're, we're waiting for this all to be fixed and so things are good but they're not quite good there's a lot of corruption a lot of evil it explains the way things are so that's kind of right at the beginning now if you take into account three traits of God. Three, God has more than this. God has lots of traits, but three, you could say a trinity of traits, perhaps. Three characteristics of God that help explain why God set, why the Old Testament, why the big first chunk of the Bible before Jesus, why all of that played out the way it did. Let me explain this. Context. This is going to take a while to get through this, but we're going to get through it together. We're going to, we're going to be in this. We're going to be survivors together, getting through this together. Three important qualities in God, that God is holy, just, and loving. He is holy, just, and loving. And these, the combination of these three traits led to the exact outworking of a plan of redemption to solve the problem of the stain of evil upon us. Because God is loving, he doesn't, he's not just interested or willing to solve the problem of evil and sin in the human heart. He's not just willing or interested in that. He desires to do that. Because he is loving, he longs to do that. He longs to share his love with us, to bring us back into relationship with him. But also, because he is holy, well, a holy God can't just allow evil. It's got to be, it can't just be ignored. It's got to be purged. It's got to be dealt with somehow. But also, he's not just loving and holy. He's also just. And justice, we know justice. Justice is there's got to be some recompense. There's got to be some consequence. There's got to be accountability for what has been done. 
And in a, in a, you know, we get this right, in a generation that's crying out for justice, we can't deny God his cosmic justice, but I think we actually agree with these traits in God, right? We don't want uh, people to be unloved, we want people to experience love. We want to experience love, surely we want everyone, not to ex- just to experience love, but to experience God's love, right? We want that, we want every- so we're, we're in agreement there with God, we want everyone to experience his love. We don't want people to have evil in their lives, we don't want people to, 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 have, you know, to invite evil. We don't want to, to do things purposely that bring evil into people's lives. We want there to be righteousness and holiness in people's lives because that's good because evil is destructive. So I, again, we align with God on this. Deep down, we know this is true. And then lastly as well, with justice, we know, you know, there has to be restoration and restitution and some kind of recompense, some kind of accountability. There has to be for the wrongs of the past, to them, for them to be made right. There has to be. God has to deal with that. And so we're in alignment with this. And it's the combination of these three traits in God that brings about the only solution to the problem of human evil. The only solution that would work. There are other ones you could come up with, but they wouldn't work. This is the only solution that would work, and it's the solution of a substitution. There had to be a substitution. Let me explain why there had to be a substitution. The separation between us and God is like a permanent divorce. So if you think of a marriage, perhaps you can think of somebody you know or you can just imagine it, um, you know, where one, of the, one spouse was betrayed in such an egregious way by the other that the marriage was no longer salvageable, it was such a betrayal that it's gone, it's, 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 it's forever, you, know, you can't restore it, you can't get it back. All right, that depicts the breakdown between us and God. That's an image of the breakdown between us and God. Now, if you have a hard time imagining that, you say, well, I get the divorce thing, I could see that happening, but really between us and God, is it really that bad? If we're struggling with that, it's because we don't understand how holy God is and how lowly we are. And in fact, we need to ask God, I'd encourage you, if you're struggling to see the gap between that of how good God is and how evil the human heart can be. I'm not saying we can't do good, we can do good because we're still made in God's image, so there's residual good there, but it's tainted, it's distorted, where the, the human heart can be bent towards great evil, any human heart can be. If you're struggling to understand that, you need to pray and ask God, God, show me how holy you are, and show me how deep and how rotten the human heart truly is. Show me both of those things. And if you can understand that, then you can understand this permanent divorce between us. If there wasn't a substitution, we would be on the line for our sin. If there wasn't a substitution, we would be on the line. We would have to bear the burden of our sin. This is why Jesus came. There was only, and there was, there could only be, only be one, one substitute, one sacrifice that could actually match and cover all of humanity's sin. There's only one way it could happen. And this is the open secret of the Bible. This is the open, it, was, it was concealed at one point, but now it's an open secret. It's kind of funny to say an open secret, but it's a secret because you know, people haven't figured it out yet. And it was concealed for a long time, but now it's an open secret for everyone to know about that it was always God's intention. It was always God's intention to make Jesus the main substitute. G, the, the, all of the, the, the long drawn out story of the Bible, all the history here, Yes, God did it a particular way over multiple generations, but the goal from the beginning, it wasn't just trial and error trying to figure it out. The goal was always 
Jesus, to send Jesus as a substitution for sin. A one-time, massive, incredible injection of righteousness, of a, gift, a free gift of grace, a free gift of goodness, to literally switch places, to take all of the junk that's in us and to switch it with Jesus, that he would then bear our punishment and it would be a substitutionary sacrifice. That was always the plan from the very beginning. But here's the other open secret now of the Bible that's been revealed to us through Jesus, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. This has been revealed to us. That God, on purpose, delayed that plan. That plan, that God pumped the brakes on that plan. Said, yeah, that's the goal. We're going to get there, but not right away. We're going to wait. We're going to unravel this plan over time. And so it's going to take generations. It's going to be, you know, God's going to write this incredible story throughout the ages of all these human lives, of all these people, and he's going to be telling the story of redemption over and over and over again to get the point across, to make it the most, to give it the most impact because we have to grant God this, that he has higher wisdom than us. He understands things far more than we understand. And in his wisdom and with his foresight, God knew this wasn't just a good way of doing it. This is the only way it would work. We might come up with other ways. We might argue. We might say, I don't like this idea of, you know, a, a, a holy, uh, just, you know, uh, God who's you know, got these traits and how he's brought about. I don't like that. You, know, you can argue as much as you like, but God is God. You can't change God. These are unchangeable traits and characteristics of God. And so therefore, this is the way it's going to be. That there has to be a substitute. There's no other way for him to express his love for him to still hold sinners accountable. There has to be some sacrifice for sin. And God in his wisdom knew this is the only way it would work. All other solutions would have been unsatisfactory. They would have brought less glory to God and they would have been worse for us. This is the ultimate way to do it. So that's the best plan, the best plan. And so God himself introduced the idea of sacrifice to the saints in the Old Testament, right? To all the believers early on, God himself introduced the idea of sacrifice to them. Now, this was a big leap forward for them at the time. You could almost say it was progressive for their day and age because he introduced animal sacrifice like lambs and bulls and birds and things like that, weird things to us. It almost sounds a bit backwards to us. It can sound a bit cavemanish to us. It sounds a bit strange. Like, why couldn't we sacrifice trees or leaves or water or fruitcake or just anything you know surely we could but it was it was better than see the pagan nations a lot of st a lot of stuff that's confusing about the old testament is that there was a lot of cultural context and what other nations were doing that we either don't know because we don't study history or is lost in history and so the israelites god's people were doing things in response to what pagan ungodly evil cultures were doing at the time and god had revealed his light and his truth to um, the descendants of abraham the Israelites, and so the Hebrews. And so God is working through that people group to share his light and share his glory with the world. And so he's revealed to them, these other pagan nations would sacrifice people. They sacrifice humans. God's like, we're not doing that because people are made in my image. <laughs> people have intrinsic worth and values. We're not doing that. So we're gonna introduce animal sacrifice instead. So that's progress. It's progress towards the ultimate end of Jesus being the sacrifice. So it's, it's better already, but still it can sound a bit backwards to us, right? We can have a hard time with even just sacrificing animals. Like that just seems strange. We go to the store and our animals are covered in plastic. You know, they didn't have plastic covered animals. All, all our stuff's covered in plastic, you know? 
So it's a bit strange. Why blood? Why, why, why animals? Why did God pick animals? Because this is God's idea. God's the one selling them. So don't worry. I know this is a lot of context, a lot of backdrop here. Bear with me. We're going to get through it together. All right. I'm trying to, I've got to take a long run up to this one. For you to really get Jesus, I've got to go all the way back and do a long run up. So hopefully you're sticking with me with this. God introduced the idea of animal sacrifice to them. Part of it is the issue of blood. The Bible tells us that life is in the blood. What does that mean? Well, I, we know what that means. We, know, we exactly know what that means. If you, if you bleed out, you die. Your life is gone. Even if you just lose a little bit of blood, you feel like you're dead. You don't have to even lose that much, right? Not even that much. And you can be like, I'm gonna die. Like, I feel terrible. I feel like I'm, I have no energy. I'm, you know, the life, literally, people will say, the life drained out of me. We understand that life is in the blood. So animal sacrifice is progress towards an ultimate one-time perfect sacrifice of Jesus. But the animal, like, like the lambs and the bulls and the birds, like, this is the best proxy that you could get to real blood, to real, a real substitution for life itself. All right, that's the best proxy you could get. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that it was actually a sacrifice for them to, to sacrifice these animals because they're, you know, they're, they're an agricultural society. They're, they're farmers, you know, essentially. So they're, you know, to give up their prized creatures, you know, they had to bring the best, you know, an unblemished lamb that, uh, you know, you would think, you know, if you're thinking economically, you'd think, well, this would be a good one to keep, to keep breeding this one, because this is like the, the cream of the crop. This one looks the best. But now we've got to bring this lamb and sacrifice this lamb to take away our sin. Like, this, this is a true sacrifice. So those two things together, the issue of, you know, the, the, the importance of blood and that being the best proxy, and then also this idea of this is a real financial, this is a real sacrifice for us to do, taught the people over and over again, this is how serious your sin is. Is how much it costs. It's costly. This is one of the most significant things you could give up that you would put your hope and trust in. And this is the best proxy we can find. And by, you know, look, it was by faith that they did it. It was, it was actually, it was God's grace that allowed them really to, to use these animals as sacrifices because even in Hebrews, there are verses directly that say that animals can never take away the sin of people. Direct verses that say that. The animals are insufficient to take away human sin. So God created this office of priest, and this is what the priest did. This is what, there was a whole tribe of priests, the priests of the tribe of Levi. All these priests, and this is what the priests did. They would get these animals, the people would bring their animals, and they would drain their blood, and they would sacrifice the animals. And they did it by faith. They had faith, they had confidence in God, that God is going to He'll, he'll find this sacrifice acceptable because our sin is so bad and he's so holy and he wants to share his love with us and we're gonna make these sacrifices to take away our sin. You know, I'm, just, I'm just aware that culturally this, this is such a foreign subject for us. It can be a foreign subject for us. The idea of just sin, being bad. You know, we're told that we're not bad. Any human who looks inside knows that's not true. <laughs> You know that's not. I'm not saying there's not good in there too, but you know, because the residual image of God, we know that, right? But come on, people. We've got to break the, the lies, the deceptions. This is the prophetic voice that comes in. This is why the Christian message is so important. With the prophetic Christian message to the world today is no, stop, stop denying your sin. Understand it's so bad. That's why these sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. But you know what? We shouldn't be put off by the idea of sacrifice. We shouldn't be put off by that idea. 
Because actually, I, I would argue we're surrounded by the, the idea of substitutionary sacrifice all the time. Let me give you a few examples to, to, to point, push this home. Charitable giving. You give to somebody in need. Your Salvation Army's there. You give some change. We, you know, we give into this offering. You know, we give sacrificial, whatever it is, sacri you know, charitable giving. Do you propose that every dollar you give to a charitable cause, that every single dollar goes towards helping somebody who no fault of their own is in bad circumstances? Do you propose that? Do you imagine? That's, I, think, I think we're all realistic. We know that some of our dollars that we give to charitable causes, they go to help people that either in part, some, some of the people, not all of them, some of the people, let's say it's a small amount, that in part, small part, or large part, or entirely, are in those bad situations because of their, some of their own doing. Either in a small amount of those people, and in, in part, or in large part. And so, what is that? Isn't that a substitutionary sacrifice? I'm using some of the money I've earned honestly, in honest work, to help people who are in some situations, some of their, not of their own choosing, but some of their own choosing. And that's a substitutionary sacrifice. That's one example. Let me give you another one. Early on in the pandemic, early on in the pandemic, when, you know, we're doing these trials for these vaccines, right? We even have people in our church sign up for trials. So people are getting these kind of, at the time, experimental injections. Like what's, people were willing to sacrifice their own health if it helped save other people. Right? That, that's an idea of a substitutionary sacrifice, even, even wearing masks early on. It would, the idea, you know, obviously things have changed a bit now, but the idea early on was, well, gosh, if it helps save some people, like, yeah, I'll, I'll go with the, insignificant, the, you know, the inconvenience of wearing a mask everywhere. Like, yeah, I'll be willing to make that sacrifice. Again, substitutionary sacrifice. Now, you might argue, okay, I get it, I get it, I see where it happens. But that's different to animal sacrifice. We're not taking a life away. We're not, like, hurting creatures. So that's still a bit different. Well, let me give you two more, and I've got to be a bit coded about the second one, or maybe I've got to be coded. I'll just do it as best I can. <laughs> if you take modern medicine, you know, you know many lab rats died in the making of that medicine. You know it, and you still take the medicine. Lots of mice, thousands, millions, I mean, breed these things. And they're the best proxy for like how medicine will affect humans is, is in my, you start the trials in mice, right? So you, and I don't know if all of it's humane or not. I don't know. I don't know how it works, but that's a clear example. See, we're surrounded by animal sacrifice. Let me give you another one. I've got to be more coded about this one because of the young ears in the room. But if you think about, and we, we dealt with this topic more in depth. I'm not going to deal with it today, but in our God of Justice series, uh, Ethics of Biology, we talked about this. But think about something like uh, Planned Parenthood some of their services that are on demand, what is that other than I'm going to sacrifice this because I want something else? Bit of a rough one to bring up. But what we cannot pretend is, we cannot pretend that we don't understand sacrifice life for life. We cannot pretend that we don't understand that, that we're not in fact surrounded by it all the time. Another example, not like the last one, but if you give plasma or blood, Similar kind of idea, right? The Bible tells us, of course, as it relates to animals, actually there's a strong Judeo-Christian um, tradition of treating animals with, you know, humanely, you know, not being cruel to animals is a big, big idea in, that in the Bible, that they're not made in God's image, and so, you know, we can eat them, and most people eat animals, and, you know, obviously you might be vegetarian, I understand that, we, but look, we're not to be cruel towards animals, but we can eat them. Therefore, it's perfectly acceptable for these Old Testament priests, not just not for people just to eat meat, 
But to sacrifice animals as a spiritual act, as a substitutionary atonement for the people's sin. It's perfectly acceptable and normal. This is God's design. Now, why did God design it this way in particular? Two big reasons. Two big reasons. The final ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, the end game of the big plan of all the multi-generations of God doing this priestly stuff all throughout the ages of all these animal sacrifices, the ultimate outworking of it in Jesus, dying on the cross in our place, his blood being shed for our blood, that complete exchange of his righteousness for our unrighteousness, that exchange, all of that is magnified with the backdrop of everything that went before it. What Jesus did becomes so much grander, so much mightier, so much more impressive when you have the backstory. That's part of the reason why God delayed it because he's like, they're not gonna get it. They're not gonna understand it unless I actually work it out in this particular way. Let me, let me illustrate it like this if, you're still, if it's still not clicking. It's kind of like the difference between Marvel and DC. Kind of, the Bible's kind of like that. Let me explain. Let me explain how it's the difference between Marvel and DC. In the Marvel universe, in the Marvel movies, right, we've got, you know, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, you know, Hulk. We've got all those characters, right? And what Marvel did really well was they did a long stretch of time, like probably one of the you know, most effective franchises of all, movie franchises of all time, probably, where they told all the backstories and multiple stories for each character over and over. They tell all these stories. And then when they bring them all together, in the Avenger movies, and the, they assemble together, and there's multiple movies of that, and there's, you know, Infinity War and Endgame, and all these amazing things that happen. When you finally get to the end story, and you have this massive crowd of characters all in there, you're not thrown off by it. You're not like, I don't understand. What, well, as long as you've kept up with it and you've watched everything, you, you understand what's going on because you have such a massive backdrop. You care and know about all the journeys of all the characters, where they've all come from, all the struggles they faced, all the origin stories. You've got it all nailed down. And so when the final story is revealed, when the end of it is revealed, you realize, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Look at what they did. Look at the story they told. Look at what it all means. Whereas with DC... I mean, I love Batman. I love the DC, you got Batman, Wonder Woman, you got some great characters there. I, 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 I feel bad saying this because I love Batman. But in the DC universe, they just didn't pull it off as well. You know, some of the Batman and Wonder Woman things were good, but then when they bring them all together, it's like they just threw in a couple extra characters and you're like, I don't know these people, I don't care about them, what's the backstory, what's going on? You're like, yeah, it was, you know, the cinematography was good, but it's like it just didn't. And even the guys that made the DC stuff admitted that and said the Marvel guys got it right. Even they said it. So that's how the Bible is Marvel. <laughs> that's how it's Marvel. The, 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 the Old Testament priests, all of that animal sacrifice over the generations, that whole process that they went through, it's a backdrop. It's a giant, giant backdrop to tell us, to paint, to, to, to boost up the, the end result, and to magnify and say, this is why this is so important, because this would never have worked in the first place. That's one of the reasons, one of the open secrets of the Bible. God's showing us. And that's, that's, that's really, that is really the second point, the big second point I wanted to make is that by God doing it this way, through these priest, this priestly sacrificial system, he shows us salvation can happen 
through no, no other way. All the other ways that, we, that you could try to bring salvation to people, all other human agency, all the human effort, humans bringing their sacrifices and following these religious rituals, which by the way, they could never follow properly anyway. And they kept failing them, kept disobeying God over and over and over again. It's, it's one big giant lesson. God is saying, if you haven't figured it out yet, no one can buy their own salvation. No animal can pay for it. No human can pay for it. It doesn't matter how good you are, how much you try. You cannot afford the price. There's only one price that can be paid, and that's the ultimate sacrifice, the infinite righteousness of Jesus exchanged for our sin, permanently switched places with us. So when we read the Old Testament, we see the inadequacy of what they did. God's showing us there's only one solution. There's only, that's the message. That's, that's, why you, that's how you're supposed to read the Bible. You're reading it saying, oh man, they didn't know. As you go through the stories, oh, they didn't know. They didn't, oh, they're, they're relying on these priests. They're relying on these sacrifices. They're relying on what they could do. And they keep time and again messing it up. It didn't change them. See, it didn't, that's, that's the difference. It didn't change them on the inside. That sacrifice didn't change. Animal blood can't change you. But the, the, the the, the message between the lines, if you can read between the lines of the Old Testament, the message in there, I mean, it was concealed, so we can't blame them because they didn't. How could anyone figure it out? The Bible's so profound. Try to write it. You couldn't. Try to come up with one verse of your own that matches anything of the wisdom of the Bible. You can't do it. You read between the lines, and it tells us in there, if you read carefully enough, only divine blood could pay this price. That's why Jesus is the priest of priests. So we've got some keys here. So now I've got to do this real quick because I already used up all my time giving all the context. Because you've got to take a lot of time because the Bible, you know, we don't, we're, we're biblically illiterate. A lot of what I just said, people have no clue about. A lot of people have no clue about. So we've got a few keys here about the priests, the priests of old, their role, and how it culminates in Jesus, how Jesus is the priest of priests. Firstly, let's look at this real quick. That the priests prayed for the people. The priests prayed for the people. This is one of their jobs. So we're going to reread verse 23 through 25 real quick. It says this. It says, the former priests, this is the Old Testament priests, like Abiathar, other priests, high priests, all kind of priests. The former priests were many in number. That's in contrast to Jesus. There's only one of him because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, that's Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The priests were limited. They had to sleep. They had to rest. They couldn't be... ...died. And also, they weren't in office all the time. So that means their sacrifice, their work to take away the sins of the people could never have been sufficient. In contrast to Jesus, who lives forever who never dies. That's why the resurrection of Jesus isn't just an abstract idea. It's not just a metaphor of like, oh yes, we come back to life in a kind of vague kind of spiritual idea. No, it's real. It's actual, literal life from death. And then the second thing we learn about priests, the first thing is that the priests pray for the people, but Jesus is the priest of priests because he, he's always interceding for us. So, he, so he's an advocate for us now in the heavenly places, pleading, and he doesn't get tired. He never retires doesn't fall asleep, he doesn't resign from his office, he is a permanent priest forever, advocating, interceding, pleading on our behalf. That's, it's not just the sacrifices they made, it was, it was 
we make the sacrifice, the animal sacrifice, but then also we're pleading with God, please let this sacrifice be adequate. Please forgive the, the sins of us and the people for this sacrifice. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking at his own sacrifice, but pleading, interceding, and he does it perfectly forever. That's why it says he saves to the uttermost. I love that. It says it in, in verse 25, I think. He is able to save to the uttermost. Complete salvation in Jesus. If you haven't, if the penny hasn't dropped yet, if it hasn't clicked yet, it's a free gift from God to us. Can't be undone. Can't be taken away. It's permanent. It's permanent. It comes through time and again in the scripture. Then verse 26 through 28. This is the next point about the priests of old. and how Jesus is the priest of priests. The priests made sacrifices. We looked at this, but real quick on this. Read this again. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those, and Jesus did not have to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he had no sin, but the earthly priest did. Excuse me, let's start in verse 27 again. Uh, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we see this daily sacrifice of the priests, constant, ongoing. It's never enough. These animals are never enough. It's never going to be enough. Can't deal with it. But then Jesus, because, because only divine blood can pay a permanent, permanently credit to us, that righteousness, he steps in. Now where it says he was made perfect, don't get confused by that phrase. Some, we, when we think of made perfect, we think, oh, he was, um, you know, uh, limited somehow or wrong somehow. We think good or bad. Sometimes we think in, in that way. But that word perfect, that means uh, complete. So it's the difference between incomplete and incomplete. It's saying that his priestly role was incomplete until he completed it. And then it's perfect. He completed his role. He's been made perfect forever as a priest because that's now his new role is Priest, high priest, the priest of priests who's interceding for us. And then the third thing we learn about the prophets of old, sorry, the priests of old, prophets was last week, priests of old, is uh, that they bring worship and praise and glory to God. They bring worship and praise and glory to God. So uh, chapter eight, verses one and two says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, it says tent there. You're like, again, if you don't know the backdrop, you don't know the history, you're going to be scratching your head saying, why are they now talking about a tent? Okay, so they had the animal sacrifices. They were doing them in a temple, right? God, they built a temple to have these animal sacrifices in. Before they had a temple, they had a tent. The tent was called a tabernacle. It's a temporary temple. They especially had it in the wilderness for 40 years as they're moving around, come out of Egyptian slavery, moving around the wilderness for 40 years, and they have to, it's like a pop-up tent almost. They have to take it down, they have to move around, put the tent back up, make the animal sacrifices again, take the tent down, move it somewhere else, pop it back up, make the animal sacrifices again, and they get into the land that God had promised them. They have the tabernacle for a while. They eventually build a temple. Whether it's a tabernacle or a, you know, a temporary tent, temporary sacrificial site, or a temple built with brick, where it's a permanent sacrificial site. Either one, they're doing the same thing in either one. And Hebrews is saying to us that these, essentially these priests, that Jesus has gone to the true tent, the true holy place. Because those things are modeled after 
the place that God lives in, the spiritual dimension, the, the most holy place. And that Jesus in that place has brought the highest glory to God because the priests in these sacrifices and in these prayers also pray, were praising and worshiping God. They were glorifying God. The whole nation of Israel, everything was organized and revolved around the temple and around the sacrificial system. Their, their, their system, their economy operated around that. Everything operated around that. It was at the center of everything. And it's amazing because you know, other countries, other, other you know, pagan nations, basically you know, they had kings and they had royalty, whatever, and they worshipped human beings and worshipped people. But the Israelites, it's funny, they had this tabernacle or this temple and the throne room in the temple where the, the Ark of the Covenant is with the Ten Commandments and you've got the mercy seat there and you've got all this cool gold stuff. It was like a throne, but no one's allowed in there. Only the high priest is allowed in there once a year because that's for God, because God is our king. I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit of a head for our next part, for King of Kings, so I don't want to get too far ahead into that. But you see, Jesus has gone into the true temple, the true tent, not made by people, not this animal sacrifice business. He's gone into the ultimate place, and he has brought the highest glory to God by being in that ultimate place. So think about it like this. See, the priests were glorifying God because they, they, they were, the whole nation revolved around their system and what they were doing. And so they were magnifying God. They were centering all the people on God, constantly bringing people back to the idea you've got to, You've got to have a substitution for your sin. You need to be forgiven of your sin. It was ingrained in the people because of the priestly system. And so they were glorifying God a lot, but Jesus has done something even more incredible. He's glorified God more than any other priest has ever done. Think about it. All cultures honor Jesus, don't they? Ask the average person you know, what do you think of Jesus? They might say, well, I'm not sure about organized religion or Christians, but I like Jesus, right? You probably That's a common answer that you'll get. Most people respect and honor Jesus. Muslims who don't believe in the, the divinity of Jesus will say, yeah, he was a great prophet, great respect for Jesus. Most people, well, most cultures honor and respect Jesus. What other priest, what other priest has brought more glory to God than, than the priestly work of Jesus to create that impression, to create that honoring around the whole globe of the work of Jesus and the, who God is? It's amazing. So, and now we enter the priestly work of Jesus. We, we, we do this. We, we do it when we pray for those around us, when we sacrifice for those around us, and when we, we glorify God by how we live and how we speak to those around us. You know, this special offering we're doing right now, we're trying to raise this big amount of money. And, you know, I guess r big is relative. <laughs> but that's part of being priests. We can be priests like Jesus by entering into that sacrifice. We worship in all kinds of ways, don't we? We glorify God in all kinds of ways. That's one way that we're worshiping, is bringing in this offering. We sing together. Singing is really powerful. You know, you get together with a group of people and you all sing the same thing. Man, it feels good. It feels really good. And it's designed by God to, to, to feel good. It's designed by God. We, we, we get delight, even if you're bad at singing, right? It's nice, actually, it's really nice if you're bad at singing because if you've got a really good voice and you can sing by yourself, you feel great, right? Because you're like, oh, this is wonderful. But if, you, if you're not got a great voice, you probably don't sing so much by yourself. Uh, or maybe you do. Um, but when you get with a whole bunch of other people, you get that sense of what it's like to make a glorious sound and we're delighting in God. And that's worship. That's worship to God. Priests prayed for the people. They made sacrifices for the people and they brought glory to God. Let me illustrate this because Jesus, see the, the priests, they, they, they 
play this bridge, they play this role, they, they, they bridge the gap between us and God, they bring that peace between us and God, and Jesus is the ultimate priest, he's the priest of priests, because he bridges that gap between us and God. Let me illustrate it this way very quickly. In 1964, 1964, in uh, what's now known as the uh, Democrat Republic of the Congo, anarchy broke out, and it was a very extremely dangerous place to be. And a missionary who had been called there, uh, J.W. Tucker, he decided to stay. Many people left. He decided to stay to continue to be faithful to the mission that God, he believed that God had called him to. Sadly, though, one day, a mob attacked him, brutally murdered him, and they threw his, his body in the, in, the, in the Baba Candy River. He had a, he had a real heart to uh, reach the uh, Mambachu tribe. It was a tribe that was hardly reached by the gospel. And it seemed like his life and his commitment to the mission that God accorded him to, it seemed like it was a real waste because he barely saw any fruit from his work, barely saw any fruit. And it's like he paid with his life to try and be present, to try and reach these people. And it seemed like a real tragedy. Until years later, a friend of his was traveling in that same region. And he heard a story. And he learned about this brigadier who was kind of equivalent to a, a police officer who had been sent from the central government at the time of this anarchy that had come out. And this brigadier had been led to Christ by J.W. Tucker two months before Tucker had been murdered. And this brigadier had become a genuine believer and had tried to share his faith with this tribe to no success, no fruit. Kind of the same as Tucker, just no fruit. Until one day, this brigadier heard of a local tradition. And this local tradition went like this. Any man's blood that is spilled in the Baba Candy River, you have to listen to that man's message. If any man's blood is spilled in the Baba Candy River, you have to listen to that man's message. So the brigadier gathered together the whole village, and he reminded them of that tradition. And he said, you remember J.W. Tucker? His blood was shed in the river. And he said, before he died, he gave me a message. And you have to listen to this message. It's a message about the Son of God who came to die for sinners. As a result of this message, thousands, thousands of Mambachus believed in Jesus. Dozens and dozens of churches were started. It's an amazing, amazing turnaround. What looked like a complete loss, what looked like a sacrifice that wasn't worth making, a man's life is gone. That's the power of blood. That's the power of blood. Every culture understands the power of blood. This man, see, Tucker's sacrifice pointed people to the sacrifice of Jesus. All the sacrifice of all the Old Testament priests point to the priest of priests, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, of Jesus. He's always interceding for us. He's always praying for us. He's made a permanent sacrifice on our behalf. And he's brought more glory to God than any priest has ever done. This is the priest of priests. And this is why Jesus was born. Let's have the band come up. We want to sing to Jesus. We need to respond today to this message. Sorry I went a little long. But you know, you've got to give context, Right? You need context. You need to understand. I can't just talk about priests and you say, what does it all mean? 
Listen, how can we respond today? It's so important that we respond to Jesus, that we keep taking steps towards Jesus. Maybe you want to get more involved at Trinity. Maybe you want to get involved in our Christmas offering. Um, Maybe you need prayer today. Maybe um, we'll have sign-ups again for our small groups starting here soon. You can look for that. Maybe you want to give your life to Christ. Maybe you want to be baptized as a believer. We're doing baptisms in January. Whatever it is, respond. Respond. You can respond in the way that uh, Thelma talked about earlier on. You can text in the word enjoy to 94,000. And there's many options there you can respond to. But let's, let's worship Jesus. Let's respond to him today and honor him as the priests of priests.